The scripture for today's sermon comes from 1 Corinthians 9, verses 11 through 18. The word of God speaks to us. If we have sown spiritual things among you, is it too much if we reap material things from you? If others share this rightful claim on you, do not we even more? Nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Christ. Do you not know that those who are employed in the temple service get their food from the temple, and those who serve at the altar share in the sacrificial offerings? In the same way, the Lord commanded that those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. But I have made no use of any of these rights, nor am I writing these things to secure any such provision. For I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. For if I preach the gospel, that gives me no ground for boasting. For necessity is laid upon me. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. For if I do this of my own will, I have a reward. But if not of my own will, I am still entrusted with a stewardship. What then is my reward? That in my preaching I may present the gospel free of charge, so as to not make full use of my right in the gospel. This is God's word to us. Good morning, guys. You doing okay? I take that as a yes. I take that as a rousing yes. Hey, I'm really glad that you're here. My name is Chad Kinster. I serve as one of our pastors, teaching pastor here downtown. And uh, if you've got a Bible, open to the, to the passage that was just read, 1 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to get there in our second, continue our study of the book of 1 Corinthians. Um, but I invited my friend John up here, one of our pastors, um, just because as we open the scriptures today, I wanted us to open by, by just blessing God, thanking God. Uh, maybe you've heard some of the news this week about what's happened uh, in, um, in Asbury University in northern Kentucky, uh, the revival that broke out there two Wednesdays ago. Uh, it was a Wednesday in that college chapel where they were having service, the service ended, and the students didn't leave. And they, didn't, they, and they haven't left even to this very day. There's just been round-the-clock worship, singing, repenting of sin, uh, trying to um, come back to the heart of what it is to be a disciple of Jesus. And thinking about a movement of God like that, where the manifest presence of God is so thick on a place that you can't move, is, is something that we pray for all the time. Our elders get together every single Tuesday morning at 7.30, and part of what we do at that prayer hour is ask God for renewal and revival and awakening that before Jesus comes back and those eastern skies break, that if possible, we could have as much of the city of God present here until he returns to bring his kingdom in full. Amen? And so we're asking for a wide sweep of the presence of God, a wide sweep of awakening toward repentance for Christians and revival and conversion for non-Christians. And so I just thought, man, what's happening there ought to call us to prayer and everyone to pray around the country to say, hey, why not my town? Why not my church? College students around the country have like been traveling to Asbury to see if they can like grab something and it can take it with them back to their university campus and say, hey, God, do it here. And I don't know another elder on our team that has prayed for um, revival as long and as earnestly as, as Pastor John. And so I just thought, man, as we open our time in God's word together, that we could receive the ministry of prayer that he would offer us as just a model and example for how we might take this up in our daily life. Amen? So we'll join with him as he sort of blesses God for this and asks for it here. Hey, will you all pray with me? Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, 
There is, there is no one like you. Jesus Christ, Son of God. There is no one like you. And we can't even dream up a, a better place than your presence, yeah. wherever your presence is. Yeah. And um, we've, we've been hearing, we've been reading, we've been watching uh, the work you've been doing in this little room, in this little town, in this, this little college in Kentucky. The mighty works of God showing off your bigness and your greatness and your holiness and your glory. And we just want to say as a, as a people gathered together in your name today, thank you. Thank you for the work of your spirit to glorify the name of Jesus. Thank you for pouring out. We love all your gifts. We love all the things you give, but God, especially the gift of repentance and salvation. God, we so desperately need that gift inside of our hardened hearts. Thank you for the work of softening you're doing, warming, filling, blessing, um, even overwhelming. You've walked into that room. And you brought your glory and our hearts just together hunger for the same. Together, we just, together we're saying, Lord, more. Would you do more in our nation? We're desperate. We're sinful. We're hurting. We're in trouble. Would you have mercy on our nation, God? Would, you've walked into that room. Would you walk into more rooms? Would you walk into boardrooms? Would you walk into courtrooms? Would you walk into hospital rooms, dorm rooms, classrooms, all kinds of rooms, unexpected rooms you would walk into and you would change the atmosphere. You would change hearts. Lord, we're asking not just for a few or for hundreds. God, we're asking for tens of thousands of people to be saved in this day, in this hour. Why not here? Why not us? Why not now? God, we're asking for your power and for your presence and for revival. And Lord, Again, we just say our deepest desire, our deepest dream is to see your face one day. That's our dream. That is our absolute hunger and quest and goal that we would see your face with our eyes. But, but until that day, God, the, the next best thing is revival. So we're asking for it. We're pleading for it. Would you burn and birth prayers inside of our heart, even this week in the week of prayer, that your kingdom would come, that your will would be done here in Oklahoma City as it's done in heaven. And this we pray in your name and for your glory alone, Lord Jesus. And everybody together said, amen and amen. God be praised. presence of God and the love of God is not something that we can earn or work up or muster up. It is something that we receive because of the Father's love for us in Jesus in the pouring of the Holy Spirit. And so with that, we, we want to open up to this passage that's really at the heart of a renewal around discipleship to Jesus in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. I want to start the sermon today by just asking you a question. 
And the question is intended to kind of drive you down into your, your heart, what's, what's in your chest, what are, what are you holding there at the deepest places? And I don't think it's a difficult question to answer, not so much a scary question, but one I want to, to encourage you to go down there and answer with me so that we can sort of see where this passage would wanna take us today. Hey, what is the thing in life that you're most after? There's a lot of things caught up in the activity of your life. There's a lot of things caught up in the direction of your life. But what is the thing that, like, at the bottom of it, like, that you want most deeply? What's your greatest treasure? Maybe it's something that you have. Maybe it's something that you don't have. But you're building your life out strategically and with your resources and with your talents and with your energies to attain that thing. Like, what are, what's your greatest treasure? What are you after? What are, you, what are you after? It's an important question. I, I don't think it's a difficult question to answer because it's probably there on the, to, on the top of your heart and on the top of your thoughts and the top of your desires all the time. You probably have an answer to this question. What are you, what are you after? What is the thing that, that come hell or high water, if everything else gives way, so long as I have blank, I'll be okay? What is that thing? Whatever the answer to that question is, that's the place in your life where you're willing to sacrifice. That's the place in your life where you're willing to sacrifice, and you probably don't even see it as a sacrifice because it's the desire of your heart so deeply that whatever you have to get rid of in order to take hold of that more, that's the place where you're willing to sacrifice. I want daddy too. <laughs> that's awesome. Hey, Whatever the answer to that question is, is also the place, it's important to identify that because it's where you're being formed. It, it, it's, it's where you're being shaped. Like your values are orbiting around that thing. Your priorities are orbiting around that thing. Um, your sense of identity and self is being oriented around that thing. My acquisition of that thing, my possession of that thing, and now my ability to keep that thing. This is why Jesus is going to say in the Sermon on the Mount, wherever your heart is, or wherever your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Whatever that thing is, it's likely something that you feel rights over, that you feel the right to possess, that you feel the inalienable right to pursue happiness, right, in this thing. You want to take up whatever you see as your rights to have that thing, to secure that thing, to protect that thing, that relationship, whatever it may be, and no one else has the right to tell you that you can't have what you see as your right to have for happiness. And so rights are a really big deal to us, especially as Americans, aren't they? Nearly everything in our moment seems to come down to the issue of rights. But I cue this question up for us today because I think it exposes something in us. The answer to these questions has revealed something in you. What, what do you want most deeply? That's caused something to rise up within you to to come to the forefront of your thoughts, it's exposed something in you, and whatever it's exposed has to do with where the text wants to take us today. Another question I would want to throw at you before we sort of dive into the context and into the passage itself is, is there anything, is there anything that would cause you to lay down your rights, whatever it is that you're, you see as your rights to have deep pleasure, fulfillment, and satisfaction, and whatever it is that you want most deeply, is there anything that would cause you to lay down those rights in order to take hold of something greater? 
Is there something else that maybe is more desirable or ought to be? Where we pick up in the passage today is in the same stream of thought. If you were with us last week from chapter 8, I've got to do a bit of a recap there because it's in the same stream of consciousness that the Apostle Paul is writing in chapter 9. He was addressing an issue in Corinth that was causing a lot of debate in the church. The debate was, can we or can we not eat meat that's been sacrificed to idols? That was the debate. And it was really fun last week to have baby dedications and lots of family members here from out of town coming in to see their grandchildren, you know, dedicated to the Lord and with the church. And we're talking about demon meat. That was a wonderful, wonderful topic last week. Welcome to Frontline Church. But the issue that they were facing as we just took up the next passage in our study was, can we or can we not eat meat in pagan temples where it was being cooked and served fresh? That was their issue. And some were on the side of the issue to say, hey, this is no big deal. Like, those aren't real gods. We're just here for a good steak. Like, this is the best place in town for buffalo wings, and I want to go. It just happens to be a pagan temple. I don't do what they do. I'm just here for the wings. And I have the right to eat whatever I want and wherever I want to eat it. And others, though, saw this as a huge deal to the point of being complicit with and even participating in demonic worship. And so Paul was... The way Paul treated this was actually quite amazing. He doesn't make rules on this. He gets to some, some commands about how they ought to navigate life together, but some would want to say, well, the scripture is not clear. Well, let's be clear. That's the legalists. Paul doesn't jump in camp with the legalists. He also doesn't jump in the camp with the license and just say, hey, just do whatever you want and everyone sort it through. Be nice to each other. Instead, what he does, he says, hey, let's not make meat and where you eat the meat, the greatest issue. That's not the greatest issue that you're facing. The greater issue is that you have personal rights, you have freedoms, but greater than your rights and freedoms is love for your brother. Love for one another is the greater issue. And you eating in those temples and participating casually in ongoing demonic worship is actually destroying the faith of some new converts or young Christians because they can't understand how you're now mixing the two of something that was once so vile for them, but now they've come to Christ and he's so sacred. How, how are you doing this? And so Paul's suggesting is that what if instead you were more, what if instead of being more interested in taking up your rights to live life however you wanted, what if you were more interested in caring for the integrity of your brother's faith what if that was of greater interest to you? Not only the integrity of your brother's faith, your unity with your brother, and the two of you growing in faith together. What if that was of greater interest? He actually invites them and us, as we navigated last week, to consider that what if there's actually something more beautiful? What if there's actually something more significant and more redemptive than, getting, than you getting what's owed to you? What if there's something bigger than that? What if by laying down your rights, what if by laying down your prerogatives, it could actually be the cause of someone else encountering the life-transforming power of Jesus? That's what he's driving at. And so that's the context of where we open now in chapter 9. And so what's going to happen in chapter 9 is Paul's going to make himself an illustration He's going to say to them, hey, I'm telling you to lay down your rights for the sake of loving your brother, but I want you to know I practice what I preach. I'm not telling you to lay down stuff that I'm not also laying down. I practice what I preach. And he's going to do this. He's going to open to us his greatest treasure. As he unfolds for us the illustration of his own life, he's going to unfold for us the thing that he's most after in life, the thing that for Paul is worth everything. He's going to give us the answer to our opening question 
Where's your greatest treasure, Paul? What are you most after? What's the thing you want most deeply? And the answer that he's going to give us as we unfold it is going to be the application for us. It's going to be the way that this text actually applies to us. He's going to show us the thing that is at the beating heart of the true Christian life. That's what this whole text is about. So we'll unpack verses 1 to 18 in two steps. Paul's going to define his rights, the rights that he has that he's now laying down. In the second part, he's going to say, here's why I'm laying them down. Here's the rights that I have, but here's why I'm laying them down. And here's what that means for the church then and for us today. So track with me. We've got a lot of work to do. We'll just sort of chart down through the text line by line, and then we'll draw application together at the end. So pick up with me in verse 1. Paul begins with four rhetorical questions that all demand the answer yes. He says, am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen the Lord Jesus? Are not you my workmanship in the Lord? And if I am, if I am not an apostle, if, if to others I'm not an apostle, excuse me, at least I am to you. For you are my seal of apostleship in the Lord. And this is my defense, he says, for all who would cross-examine me, for all who would want to debate me or put me under examination. This is my defense. He has these questions. I'm free, aren't I? I haven't indentured my rights to anybody. I'm not a slave. I'm a freed man, aren't I? I'm an apostle, he says, aren't I? To which the church goes, yes. I've seen the Lord Jesus, haven't I? What's interesting about him throwing up that question is in chapter 15, he's going to say, I'm an apostle, untimely born, meaning I wasn't one of the 12 original disciples actually walking with Jesus in his earthly ministry. But if you go back into Acts chapter 8, his whole testimony was that Paul was a persecutor of Christians, had received rights from the Jewish elite to kill Christians, was on the roads of Damascus to go do that. And the Lord Jesus, the resurrected, glorified Lord Jesus, appeared to him and said, stop what you're doing. That changed everything for Paul. He was going to kill Christians. Now he is a Christian, and he's preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so he says, this happened to me, didn't it? And you are my workmanship. Well, you know this about me. Others want to debate my apostleship, but he's telling the church at Corinth, you realize you're receiving this letter as Christians and as a church because I preach the gospel of Jesus to you. You're the seal of my apostleship. You're proof that all this is really true about me, to which they would say, yes, it is, Paul. And his point in making these three, I'm sorry, these four rhetorical questions is that I am a man among you who is distinguished and I have rights. There are things that are owed to me. I have a prerogative. And in verse 4 to 6, he outlines his rights, and he does so in terms of financial compensation. He talks about it in terms of money. And we'll get to why he chooses finances in just a moment, but his argument is, because of what I've done, because of how I've served you, I ought to be paid as a pastor. That's the point he's making here. I ought to be paid. I have rights to compensation. And so he's going to touch on the issue of money that's certainly precious to us in our moment, but it's always been precious to people. People have always clamored around money. It's a way to grab people's attention. He does that. So look at what he says in verse 4. He says, don't we have the right to eat or drink? And what he means by this is I've worked hard among you. I've labored hard as a minister of the gospel. I shouldn't have to worry about food. I shouldn't have to worry about where my next meal is coming from. I shouldn't have to worry about my basic needs being met. I've worked hard as a minister among you. Shouldn't that be enough to get compensation enough to take care of my meals? And then in verse 5, he says, Do we also not have the right to take along a believing spouse or a believing wife? 
as do the other apostles and the brothers of our Lord and Cephas. Now, Paul didn't have a wife, as other, as other apostles clearly did, but he mentions Peter and the brothers of our Lord here. And the idea is that because of our work as pastors, we should be able to take care of a family, if we have a family. Because of the work we do as ministers of the gospel, we should be able to provide for a family. In verse 6, he says, Or is it only Paul and Barn- or is it only Barnabas and I who have no right to refrain from working for a living? Because I'm a pastor, does that mean I should have to take a side job to make ends meet? As though what I do isn't real work enough to garner a wage. And so he's stacking his arguments about the rights he has as a pastor, as an apostle, to financial compensation. He's stacking his arguments. It's a convincing one so far, but he continues forward in verse 7 and things say, hey, you actually agree with what I'm saying because of what's common in your world. Pick up in verse 7. Who serves as a soldier at his own expense? Another rhetorical question. Well, well, no one does, Paul. You're compensated for your service to your country, your service to your people. You don't pay for your bullets or your food. We provide that for you if you enlist as a soldier. And then he goes on. Who plants a vineyard without eating from its fruit? No one who is a grape farmer would be seen on the other end of their harvest enjoying a glass of wine that they worked so hard to produce as by you going, You see, I knew it that that guy had ulterior motives. All along, he was in it for the grapes. His motives. No, you would say, hey, enjoy the glass of wine. You worked hard for it. Just pour me a glass too, right? And he says again, or who tends a flock without getting some of the milk? He's like, I'm not building this argument, verse 8, on human authority. He now quotes from the Old Testament, from Deuteronomy 25. For it's written in the law of Moses even about animals, you shall not muzzle an ox while he treads out grain. The ox is working so hard, feed him. But then he says, does God tell us this because he's concerned about the ox? Well, surely God cares about all his creatures, but verse 10, no, he, certainly, he says this for our sake. It was written for our sake because the plowman should plow in hope and the thresher should thresh in hope of sharing in the crop. And so verse 11, he comes down and he says, so if we've sown spiritual things among you, if we've worked hard as pastors, Is it too much to ask that we would get more than just spiritual joy? We would also have our material needs met. He goes on even in verse 14 to reference something from the teachings of Jesus. He says, in the same way, the Lord commanded those who proclaim the gospel should get their living by the gospel. He's pulling from Luke 10 and Matthew 10 when Jesus sends out the 72. He says, don't take anything with you, your labors, and because of your labors, you'll be taken care of. And so Paul's making a good case for his financial rights, but it feels a little, salt, a little salty, doesn't it? <laughs> like it feels like, hey, it feels like this is a loaded conversation between you and the church at Corinth. We don't have the previous letter that maybe provoked this, but he and the Corinthians clearly spoke frankly with one another in their correspondence. Now, just to pause for a second, as you might guess, these verses are favorites among angry preachers who want to demand for wages that they don't feel like they're getting. That's not why I'm preaching this today. It's just the next passage in our study. And these verses have also been used by churches to keep from properly compensating their pastors because they'll make the appeal, well, Paul laid down his rights, well, so should you. These verses have also at times been horrifically misused and misapplied by prosperity preachers to justify lavish living. And that's an ironic conclusion to come to because the whole point of this passage is that Paul lays down his compensation rights. Now, as a quick aside, Paul's not wrong in what he's putting forward here. He's not wrong. 
There are principles here for how a pastor ought to be compensated and a guide that actually instructs our church in how we pay our pastors. We want our pastors, as he lists out here, to be able to provide for their families. We want our pastors to be able to take care of their personal needs. We want our pastors to be able to live in such a way in our city, out of their homes, that they can, that they can be present in hospitable ministry. We want all of those things. At the same time, we want to avoid both the errors of paying pastors foolish and lavish salaries on one side, and on the other side, keeping pastors and their families in poverty. Both are errors, and both have damaged untold numbers of pastors, families, and churches. So you can get bogged down in the arguments that Paul's making for apostolic compensation and think it's just about money, but don't miss the burden of this passage. Paul is outlining all of this about, on a conversation about rights. He's making the case, I have rights to compensation, but the bigger conversation is I'm laying down those rights for something greater that's driving me, something greater that's down inside of me that's my deepest burden. And the reason he chose money to make this point is because in, in their day, Corinth was loaded with wisdom teachers. It was loaded with these spiritual gurus, these traveling philosophers. Think of them sort of in our moment as those people who want to monetize life coaching, right? These would be people who would have loved to have sat down with you over a $7 latte or $9, depending on where you want to buy your lattes. I'm not mad about the price of lattes, I promise. But they would have been willing to sit down with you and teach you about life and teach you about a vision for the good life and teach you about how to live a life in line with the pagan gods. They'd have been glad to teach you about any of that so long as you're willing to pay. And then if you liked what this life coach or the spiritual guru had to say, they'd be glad to teach you more, even give you personal mentorship so long as you'd be willing to pay a higher fee, a higher price. Sounds quite familiar to our moment, doesn't it? And so this is why Paul says in verse 12, if others clearly right, uh, if others share this rightful claim on you, which clearly they do, don't we deserve anything? Don't we deserve something because of the gospel we've preached and the way we've served you with something that's actually true? And so through 12 verses, Paul has outlined his rights, and now he's going to make the turn. Now he's going to make the turn. He's going to tell them why he's laid these rights down. What's down there, Paul? What's the driving burden of why you're bringing all this up? Pick up with me the second half of 12. He says, but nevertheless, we have not made use of this right, but we endure anything. We will endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus. This is what's down there for Paul. So Paul is saying, among you, I made this deliberate choice to lay down my rights so that you wouldn't confuse me with just another peddler of pagan spirituality. I didn't want you to think that I was just giving you another worldview, one of another worldview out of many. I wanted you to know that what I was doing was distinct. It was different, even such to the, to the degree that I wasn't going to charge anything from you. Paul's greatest belief was that Jesus is for anybody. Jesus is for everybody. And it's not just for the people who could pay for it. It's for anybody who would be willing to look to the cross and submit to Jesus as Lord. And so just so you wouldn't confuse me as giving you one worldview among many, I was willing to do whatever it took for you to hear because the message of Jesus hits different. And more than anything, Paul says, I wanted you to see that. And what we know true of Paul is that I would rather be a tent maker. I'd rather make little tents and provide a living for myself 
and substance for myself than be an obstacle, than put an obstacle in the way of someone coming to know and embrace more of Jesus. He repeats this again in verse 15. He says, but I have made no use of these rights. And I'm also not writing just in case the, the, the Corinthians were wondering, is he just putting a guilt trip on us to actually get money from us when he's saying, I don't want money from you? Paul's saying, no, in case you think that, I'm not writing to secure any provision from you. He's not like this desperate missionary who's saying, I'm not asking money from you, but I'll be glad to take your money. That's not what Paul's doing. He even says, I would rather die than have anyone deprive me of my ground for boasting. I'd rather die. I would rather end this conversation right now and breathe my last, lest you think that this is about money. This isn't about money. I've got a greater reward than that. So verse 16, he says, so if I preach the gospel, that's not my ground. That's not my reward for boasting. Necessity is laid upon me. God has broken through. The love of God in Jesus Christ has broken through and freed me from my sins, freed me from death, promised my resurrection from the dead because of what God has done in my life. Preaching is a necessity for me. It's like a reflex. It's what I got to do now. I, it's shut up in my bones like a fire. I've got to let it out. Preaching itself isn't my boast or my reward. He says, woe to me if I don't preach the gospel. He even pronounces a curse on himself. What God has done is so precious to me that I've got to get it out. Woe to me, cursed be to me if I don't preach this gospel. Now what's crazy here is I often like to think of myself as a devoted Christian until I read the Apostle Paul. <laughs> and then I wonder, am I even a Christian at all? Like this man's got burdens and passions that are down there driving his life that, that don't seem to be as close to my heart. But I don't want you to hear Paul here as a religious fanatic. That's not the point. The point isn't, wow, Paul, you're really passionate about Jesus. That's not the point. That's not how the church throughout history has received Paul. He's an apostle, which means by his writings, he's setting an example for all Christians about how our life and practice ought to carry forward. This is not just a stage for Paul to prop up how serious he is about Jesus. He's setting example for all Christians. This is what baseline seriousness as a disciple should look like for all of us. Paul's heart, his burden, the passion that he's setting before us should be the aim of every Christian. So then he gets to, well, then what is your reward, Paul? You keep saying that these preaching itself isn't your reward, and woe to you if you don't preach. Well, then what is your reward? What is your ground for boasting? He tells us in verse 18. Well, what then is my reward? What's my angle? What's my wage? What am I getting out of all of this? Here's the kicker. That in my preaching, I may present the gospel free of charge so as not to make full use of my right in the gospel. So what does he get paid? What's in it for Paul? To simply freely preach the gospel that sets people free. He's like, that, that's my reward. My reward is that you would see Jesus, see and savor him, to see him as glorious as he is, as God's own son, the love of God on display for you, and in a way that I would put no obstacle from you seeing that as the precious thing that it is to be received to shape your whole life. His reward is to simply enjoy more of Jesus and see others embrace that Jesus. That's his reward. He's saying, and there's nothing that I won't give up for more of that. Sit with that for a second. The deep 
driving, abiding passion for Paul was enjoying Jesus and seeing others embrace Jesus. That drove his whole life. That wasn't just a religious thing compartmentalized over here on Sundays for church. That was the thing that drove Sundays into every other day of the week. That's just how I live my life. Enjoy Jesus and see others embrace him. And there's nothing that I won't give up for more of that. That's the thing for Paul. And the reason I've wanted to preach this sermon this far just by simply reading the text is so that we can hear Paul in his own voice, in his own cadence, because he's driving at the heartbeat of true Christianity. You say, what is true Christianity? It's this, in one sentence, if I can say it. To know Jesus and make him known. That's it. <laughs> if that doesn't sound like much to you, then you might not know Jesus. But this is the Son of God, the love of God on display, not that we work to God, but that he worked to us, he intercepted us, he collided with us to simply have Jesus, the presence of God offered to us and to make him known everything else Paul is saying, that can be all be considered as lost, just give me that. That is true biblical Christianity, no strings attached, just Jesus and making him known. And if that to you sounds like religious fanaticism, if that just sounds like a spiritual fruitcake to you, then that's only because true Christianity is actually that foreign to us. This is just normal Christianity. You see, Paul's vision for life isn't about me and what's mine, and that's what's common in our moment. My vision for life is me and what's mine and what can I get. His vision for life is the glory of God and the gospel of Jesus. And this is why Paul was so maddening to his persecutors. Rome wanted to shut Paul up all the time. They imprisoned him. Don't speak about Jesus. Fine, imprison me. May Christ be magnified in my sufferings. Well, gosh, we don't want him to worship Jesus in prison. We'll set him free and tell him not to preach again. Fine, Christ be magnified in my life. Well, we'll just threaten to kill him. Fine, for me to die is gain, Paul says, because then I actually get to be with Jesus. It maddened his persecutors. For Paul, all of life was an opportunity. Bad circumstances were not obstacles to overcome. Bad circumstances were just new opportunities to magnify Jesus and to make him known. This was bread and sustenance for Paul. And I'm preaching this not so much to you, I'm preaching this so that my heart gets there too, because it's not as it should be. And what's crazy about this is you can't make the argument, you can't make the argument that Paul lived an unsatisfied life. It was just religiously restricted. Paul would say, I had no restrictions. I was free because I had Jesus and I was making him known. He lived a satisfied life. He lived a prophetic life. He lived a life that you and I would want to look at him and go, how can I do that? Remember last week we ended. We ended last week by talking about how so much of our lives is a decision between Jesus and indifference. And what I meant by that was, isn't it true that most of us live our life with the mentality, how can, I, how can I get all of the world like everyone else gets all of the world? Like how can I participate in the world kind of like everyone else participates in the world but still get away with it as a Christian? How can I do life like everyone else does life but then get a Christian pass? Like how can I do that? 
But Paul is totally operating in a different category here. He's not deciding between Jesus and a little sin on the side. Paul is operating by even being willing to give up morally neutral things like a wage, like a pastoral wage, if it means that I can have more of Jesus and offer him without a hitch to others. This would be like me giving up my love for Oklahoma State athletics or Phil giving up his love for the Philadelphia Eagles if it meant presenting the gospel more clearly. And some of you hear that and you're going, hey, I didn't know you were an Oklahoma State fan. It actually would bless me to hear the gospel more clearly from you if you would just get rid of that loyalty there, right? (laughs) Amen. But lean in with me. If you're hearing this and you're thinking, okay, okay, what's the pastor about to ask me to give up? Like Lent is coming, it's Ash Wednesday in a few days. What's he about to ask me to give up? There's a hook here, I know there's a hook. Just get to the hook, preacher. If that's what you're thinking, you're actually missing the point. You're actually missing the point. You see, at no point in this whole conversation about rights is Paul framing this in terms of the negative. He's not going, well, gosh, I had to give up some money to give the gospel to these people. He doesn't see this as a negative. The whole conversation is, termed in, is framed in terms of gain for Paul. This is reward. Sure, I had to lay down some rights, but that was gain to me. Who cares what I had to give up if it means that I get more of Jesus and people come to know him? It's hardly a sacrifice worth comparing to the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord, personally, and the person sitting next to me enjoying the same one. And the hard part about this for application is that I can't answer the question for you as to what sacrificing for more of Christ and his gospel would look like. You know your life better than me. But the question isn't what do I have to give up? The question is, How can I see and embrace more of Jesus? Frame it in the positive. How can I see and embrace more of Jesus? Everything else is on the table. Is there anything standing in the way of you and Jesus? Is there anything about your life, the way you talk, the way you act, is there any pattern of your life that's keeping others from seeing Jesus more clearly? You see, as long as you and I live our lives in terms of living our best life, as long as we see life as how much can I get out of it, then we're going to miss the point of what Paul's trying to offer to us, and we'll also miss the passion of the true Christian life. And just to kind of make this hit one more time before the close, in Bible Belt, Oklahoma, so long as you see Jesus as an obligation... So long as you see your religious convictions as an obligation and a hindrance and kind of a killjoy, so long as you see Jesus as an obligation and not a delight, then everything in this passage will be confusing to you. Because Paul's making crystal clear, I'm not obligated by the gospel. It's my reward. It's my feast. It's my life. I give things up, but it's hardly a give up because I'm feasting on Christ and making him known. That's food for me. Do you see Jesus as sufficient enough to lay other things down? What Paul was offering to the church then, here's the finish today. What Paul was offering to the church then 
was totally foreign to their way of thinking. <laughs> and it's crazy because it's totally foreign to our way of thinking. Totally foreign. It's totally different than the get all I can while I can mentality that so pervades our moment. And so there's, there's a couple of ways you can live your life, but only one works. I'll give them both to you quickly, and then we'll get out of here. There's a couple of ways you can live your life, but only one works. You can live a life centered on you. You can do that. You have the right and the prerogative to choose that. You can live a life centered on you, a life that can be about your rights, your prerogatives, your way in the world. And if you do that, it will cause you to live a life, maybe as you're living it now, to see it in terms of what's owed to you. That when life is built around you, you feel like stuff is owed to you. You will live entitled and you'll often be put off by other people as you see them getting in the way of what you're really after or you'll see them as a threat by taking away what you're really after. Over time, you'll turn bitter when people and circumstances don't work for you or respond to you how you think they ought to work or respond to you. And then over time, living a self-centered life, you will take on a victim mentality. You'll start to judge the motives of other people because you just assume they're after you and you'll start to interrogate God because he isn't giving to you what you feel he was supposed to give to you and keeping up his end of the deal. That's a self-centered life. You can live two ways. One doesn't work. That one clearly has its end. The other way is to live a God-centered life with Jesus at the center and everything that he brings with his presence as the prize. It's not the stuff Jesus gives that's the prize. It's Jesus that's the prize. And if you live with Jesus at the center, it will cause you to live a surrendered life, a surrendered life, your kingdom come, your will be done, not my will, but yours be done. A surrendered life to God and the good of others. And you won't see life so much in terms of what you are owed because that's not how God dealt with you. God didn't deal with you in terms of what you owed him. He sent his son. He laid down his rights and was judged in your place for your sin so that you might have the right to become an adopted son or daughter. And so when Jesus is at the center, the question shifts, not what is owed to me, but what do I owe to God in worship? What do I owe my neighbor in terms of love? If God has been this way to me, well, then surely I must. And how can I advance the mission of God and the spread of, uh, the spread of his glory with my life? That we can join the Apostle Paul. For me, to live is defined by Christ, and to die is gain, because then I'm with Christ. Hey, what would shift, real quickly, what would shift in your marriage what would shift in your friendships? What would shift in the way that you go to work? What would shift in the way that you deal with your extended family? What would shift in the way that you live on your block if you moved from a self-focused rights orientation to a Jesus-centered God orientation? What would shift? And the final here is, what would it be for you to make Paul's passion your passion? That's the heartbeat. Like, listen, I'm not trying to call you into varsity Christianity. I'm trying to call you into Christianity. 
What would it be for you to make Paul's passion your passion and your passion for others? Verse 12, nevertheless, I have not made use of this right or many others, but I will gladly endure anything rather than put an obstacle in the way of the gospel of Jesus. Let's pray together. Our Lord, we just want to, gosh, we just want to confess where we're not today. I want to confess where I'm not in relation to the truth of this scripture. Father, we, we aren't able to say as often as we should be able to say with Paul that to live is Christ and to die is gain. So much of the time we see that to live is upward trajectory a fatter bank account, a picturesque family, that those are the things that to live is for. But to live is Christ and to die is gain. God, would you help us to see all that you've offered in your son as the most precious thing in this life, that it would begin to shift what's deepest inside of us, that my greatest burden, I'll lay anything down to have Jesus and make him known. Take the world. Just give me Jesus. Take the world. Just give me Jesus. Teach us the heartbeat of true Christianity, Holy Spirit. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.